Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Ellen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guests are Matthew Hannibal and Ines Montani. You might know them as the people behind the Spacey library that a lot of us know and love. I guess in academia, I think we mostly use it as pre-processing uh, to like do part of speech tagging or tokenization or whatever before you do input to whatever model you want to do. Matthew and Ines might not think of it quite as a pre-processing library. Uh, it probably gets a lot more use outside of academia for other things. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hi. Thanks. And um, actually, yeah, I think pre-processing is, you know, a very common use case for library these days. But, you know, often it is useful to pre-process with models as well, which is why for spacey ships with like an entity recognizer and stuff. It, there, there's a lot of nice stuff in there. But today we're not going to talk about spacey. We're going to talk about something else you've been working on, which is where do corpora come from? Do you want to give us an outline of what you're doing here? I guess this is a talk you've given at a bunch of meetups recently. This is, and you've built a tool called Prodigy. Yep. And this is like the basis of that, right? Yeah. Sort of high level idea behind this is when we were working with people who were doing commercial NLP, we found that annotation workflows and questions around annotation were actually some of the really high impact things that could be improved. They were the things where the projects were most likely to be succeeding or failing were around questions around the data process and uh, the annotation process. That's why we think it's important to you know, basically be talking about these things and why we develop tooling that we think actually helps people get these questions more right than wrong and uh, you know, gives them better workflows with these things and especially helps them iterate and you know, basically do more rapid prototyping. I guess we don't think about this as much as we probably should in academia and research. And I was trying to think about why. I guess I'm, I'm currently trying to build a, a data set right now but it's for like more complex question answering or reading comprehension kinds of stuff. We don't think about this active learning kinds of annotation. We don't, we don't study the process of annotating data because it, from a research perspective, it's hard to get funding to like do a, a controlled study where like you try different annotation methods and you see what works and it's hard to evaluate this kind of thing. But I guess you, you run into this kind of problem a lot though, right? Yeah. And I would actually say that you know, the problems in academia are a little bit different where, you know, we when you're defining a new data set, you're usually thinking about defining a new task, as you say. The problem that we're really talking about much more is basically deciding what to do, like, how, you know, deciding how to solve some sort of problem. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, so um, a lot of the problems we, we've seen really come down more to like the problem definition and how do I design my label scheme and how do I decompose the larger, the larger application that's supposed to like do something in the real world into smaller um, tasks and into also smaller machine learning problems that I can actually solve. So even things like, should I use a named entity recognition model or is this a text classification problem? That's something that might sound trivial and super simple in theory, but in practice, if you're actually working with a real application and real problem, it's not always that obvious. And it takes a lot of trial and error and a lot of experiments um, to really get this right. And it's very, it's actually surprisingly easy in um, a more industry setting, if you're solving a, a problem and trying to make something work, to end up with a model that's supposed to predict something s similar to music I like, which of course seems like something a model can't learn. But you know, once you're really deep um, in a very specific domain, it takes it takes a lot to really find a label scheme that makes sense, find a label scheme that a model can learn. And that's that's really something we're trying to solve with better tooling around this type of stuff. Yeah, I guess I could think of this as how do I do better at applications of natural language processing? Like I, we in the research community focus a lot more on like pushing boundaries for new stuff. But industry has a whole lot of problems with like how do I take what people have done and apply it to my business problem, 
right? Exactly. So it's how do you compose these models together to make solutions? And there's a lot of choices in that that are, you know, fundamentally pretty hard to study from an academic perspective. And I don't think that it's necessarily the job of the academic community to develop those things. But it does come back to the annotation flows, because once you're deciding what to annotate, you have to have already decided what model you want to train. So deciding what the output should look like is basically the same as deciding the annotation scheme. And that's why we suggest this sort of iterative workflow and also workflows to help people annotate things faster and you know, annotation processes that work at a smaller scale so that people can try things out and try different putting togethers of things. They can you know, basically come up with better solutions for this. Can you give a concrete example of the kind of process you're talking about and that Prodigy will help people with? Well, let's say that you've, you're working on a, a type of problem where there's only a fixed number of the entities. So basically, a lexicon will work pretty well. In this type of problem, you might use to say, start off with a word vector model and then give it a couple of seed terms. And then basically, Prodigy will use the vectors to suggest uh, similar terms to what you gave it. And so you can build a, a lexicon pretty quickly this way, and then you can use the lexicon to bootstrap an entity recognizer. Um, yeah, yeah. often you might have some idea, you want to train a model for your domain, like we have a lot of users from finance to healthcare, often the areas where you kind of don't know what will work until you try it. So you can have an idea, you can say, hmm, let's see if my text classification model could learn this, that would really solve my problem. And you can actually um, go through this very quickly, build a prototype, build a proof of concept, and basically decide which of these approaches you want to invest in and try more of. And that's only possible if like the tooling lets you do this in a very quick way and you don't have to call a meeting, hire a bunch of people, put it on Mechanical Turk, wait a few weeks, train your model and then see, ah, shit, didn't work. So what, what kind of evaluation do you recommend that we do? We recommend something like a bootstrapping type process where for very small questions, there's a technique that we have in Prodigy where you basically run A-B evaluation. And so even for something like a named entity recognizer, you can run two versions of your model and pipe the outputs into this A-B uh, comparison and you say, which randomly allocates one to green and one to red. And then you click, okay, was green better in this or red better in this? And that means that, you know, even with only takes you like one minute or two minutes to get a robust evaluation over models that only, are only slightly different. And so if you're working on something where you don't have a large evaluation set yet, this is a very quick way that you can say, all right, am I moving in the right direction? But as you sort of start running these things and you keep working, at some point it does become useful to get an evaluation set and then you want to basically held out set the same way that you would for other methodologies. Yeah. Another little trick that we've found um, to work quite well is we have one mode where you, if you have an evaluation set or um, some data you can hold back, you run um, several uh, training runs, uh, training experiments with different portions of the data. So you start off with 25%, 50 75 and then all your data. And that can sometimes give you a very nice rough approximation how your model is improving with more data. Like, of course, you, you, know, you still have to like try it out, but... Often, if you see a significant increase um, in the like, last 25%, as a rule of thumb, that's often an indicator that maybe if you keep collecting more data of that type, that your model will likely improve. Of course, it's not like a definitive answer, but you know, if you're prototyping, this can often be a good indicator whether, like, yeah, to find out whether am I on the right track or am I completely off. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of question this can answer. So the, the, this type of evaluation makes sense when we're trying to evaluate different approaches, that, but we know exactly what is the thing that we're trying to predict? But like you said before, oftentimes when we think about this, uh, the downstream applications, we don't know exactly how to decompose the problem into smaller NLP uh, sub-problems, right? Or just like, how do we reduce, uh, decompose our problem into a series of predictions, which then we need to train a model for? And it's not clear to me how do you use this approach in order to, to make this decision? 
ultimately it's like other types of programming, right? So a model's just a function. And in you know, normally in programming, you've always got these decisions about where to do the work, right? You can make one function like, you know, do a bit more of the computation and output a different, you know, type of uh, thing that a, another function will consume, or you could like have a function in between. There's always these decisions about how to divide up the labor. And we've got exactly the same type of decision to make when we're, you know, modeling things with uh, machine learning. So ultimately you have to, you know, basically pick something. But then after having, you know, chosen, all right, I'll try it this way. I'll try putting this together, this sort of pipeline to solve a problem. So for instance, I don't know, you might say, all right, I'll try a fully end-to-end -end model uh, that will do something like semantic roles as an entity recognition uh, model for, you know, maybe you decide that that's going to be, you know, probably have a decent chance of success in your task. So, okay, you try that out. And then us, our recommendation is that you work in a way that lets you export that model in an easy-to-use format that you can plug into the rest of an application. And that's why Prodigy and Spacey make it pretty easy to get a model package that you can then plug into another system, you know, basically use as an artifact so that you can try it out in your, a sandbox of your next application, even with a few percent of live data or something if you're working in that type of system. The opposite of this that we recommend against is living in your Jupyter notebook or you know whatever environment that you're basically testing in for ages, um, optimizing some score where you don't know whether that score actually correlates with success in your application. You know We think that basically closing the loop as quickly as possible so that you can try exporting the model is the answer for this. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if I could summarize so far, I think at a high level, what you want to do, the, the problem you're trying to solve is that I, if I want to apply NLP to my business problem, probably I need to like fine tune some models, like get, get, get a new model that works for my particular business use case. And you want to provide tools to, to solve, to make this easier for people who want to do this, right? Yeah. I don't think we've actually described yet what your tools do. Do you want to tell us about Prodigy or whatever else you recommend? Um, yeah, so Prodigy is um, a developer tool. So it's a Python library you can install on your system. So you download it, run it. It comes uh, with a web application that you can spin up and a command line interface and the option to write your own Python scripts. So what you do is you compose um, what comes in. So your data stream, how it should be modified, whether something should be updated as new annotations come in. Then you can easily kind of pipe that forward, start a server, and uh, see that in your web interface and annotate. So the idea is you can have different interfaces, you can label a whole text, you can label spans in a text, you can make them manually editable where you kind of click and drag to highlight something. You can have an image, you can have HTML, so it's very free form and it's also open to your interpretation what this means in the end, what you're labeling there. And we've really tried to focus on efficiency, speed, the annotation interface really focuses on three main actions, accept, reject, and ignore. We try to break down as much as possible into very simple, very quick decisions because that also helps the data quality. And if you know, we really try to automate whatever a computer can do well and focus on what we really need a human decision on. The quicker the human can make that decision, the better because we get better data and more data. So that's, that's the philosophy and idea in a nutshell. Just from listening to that description, someone might think that this is like a collection of, say, React components or I don't know what, what library you're using, but like a, a set of like U web UI components to make things easy. I, I would say... Looking at your presentations and other things, it seems like there are three key ideas that you have that make this like more than just a nice interface, right? So it's like easy integration with a model because of spacing, yeah. right? Uh, mm -hmm. So it's easy to hook up 
things so you can get data the way you want. You also try to break down complex decisions into mm-hmm. binary decisions. We should talk about that more. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is you've talked, at least in your materials, you talk about active learning. And I'd like to get more information about how exactly you do active learning in this kind of setting, because I think that's really interesting. So how, how about we talk about this binary decision thing first? What, what is this? Okay, so I would actually just clarify a little bit um, and say that you know even if you know, are not working in a binary interface, I think that a lot of the annotation tools do that's unideal is present really long documents with lots of decisions and complicated interaction patterns, and then you do a whole bunch of work for minutes at a time, and then you submit that off. I think this really runs counter to the way that like good application design works. So yeah, also how how humans work in general. Like if um, yeah, we we are quite bad at a lot of things, and if you ask a human to perform a series of these steps, they're most likely going to make some mistake somewhere. And also in general, the more friction you have, the less satisfying the interaction. So that's that's something. Yeah, we did want to get across. And um... yeah, that that's a good point, and it's one that I know a bunch of people are thinking about with NLP annotation in general. Like there's this QA SRL project that tries to take what what is a complex decision over the whole sentence structure like what's the predicate argument structure of the sentence you could like annotate this whole thing in one go with this complicated annotation scheme yep. and they're saying how about we make this a lot simpler and just have people ask questions if if we get the right questions and answers this will give us predicate argument structure and another thing similar ideas with co-reference resolution so so yes breaking stuff down into this is really good that's also something we've seen that basically often um, instead of focusing on every single thing you might want to annotate, often if you have a few small things, everything else will fall into place. So if you, um, even if you're annotating part of speech tags and you know what the verb is, that has a huge impact on all of the other predictions you're making. You know, if you had the verb wrong, just changing that one decision can really make a much bigger impact than having a human annotate every article or every instance, every instance of the, and then they're going to make one mistake. And then you have your model trying to fit on that one example yeah. and trying to come up with some theory. So yeah, yeah, we've, we've basically, we've come to the exact same conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So sit. So- Said slightly differently and to, to build an intuition for this, if you're doing structured prediction, like the thing that makes structured prediction kind of attractive as an inference style or a learning style is that there's so much mutual information in the structures that we're output, right? And so one bit of the parse tree, if you know that information is really useful information for another part of the parse tree. And similarly, you know, what is the predicate is really useful features for what argument you're deciding. And so given that there's so much uh, mutual information there, if you could pick which bits of information to provide about the structure over like a whole corpus, the sort of least informative ones, you want the bits to be spread out over all the examples. Because given some bit of information on one predicate argument structure, you can really reasonably guess all of the other ones, right? And so you're streaming information more usefully from the human into uh, the model if you spread this out and have different bits of each structure annotated uh, rather than having all of the bits of one structure annotated completely and then all of the bits of the next structure annotated completely and having bits of fewer structures. So this approach to annotation makes a lot of sense and it also motivates different types of algorithms for learning from them. Could you elaborate a little on uh, Mm -hmm. what kind of, so why the current methods I mean, obviously, current methods or the standard thing to do is to use the annotation for the entire inputs uh, that you're trying to make prediction about. Mm -hmm. But now you're saying this is not the most efficient way to collect data. And I wonder, based on your Mm -hmm. experiments, what turns out to be a better way to do this? Just to to preface this slightly, it's really only easy to do the binary uh, style if you've got an initial model. So there's kind of a cold start problem to get over. So at some point, you do need to, you know, if you're starting a new task or, you know, you've got no reasonable basis point to start with, 
then sure, you need to annotate some structures entirely because otherwise you're doing this random exploration and it's not efficient. But at some point, I do think it's efficient to switch over to the binary interface to basically build out the model um, and uh, do this. So are you asking about the algorithms to use or like, you know, um, the annotation process? Or So I guess there are two important questions here. One is how to pick which parts of the input that we should ask the annotator to work on. And then once we have this annotation, this incomplete annotation, how to use it to update our model? What we do by default in Prodigy is basically just ask questions that try to maximize the uncertainty. You know, this is the form of active learning that we've found is, you know, a simple policy that people can intuit that uh, also works pretty well. So the idea there is that you're just sort of maximizing the expected size of the gradient. So if you ask questions near 0.5, then in expectation, you're going to have the largest update of the model to make. There's some situations where this isn't best. There's also difficulty of, you know, if the model's super miscalibrated, then it's hard to rely on this as a selection mechanism. There's also questions around um, how to order the examples that the same sort of uh, questions are asked at the time. So we, in particular, we like to ask questions about one label at a time. Let's say you've got like a model with like 20 different labels. We always encourage people to work on one label at a time um, because then you've got much less clicking in the interface and you're only thinking about one part of the annotation scheme. And we think that that actually makes the annotation both go faster and be much more accurate. Earlier, you, you brought up this idea of like, if I knew where the root was or I knew where the wh mm -hmm. which ones of these things were verbs, I could do a whole lot better. And that sounded like a really interesting kind of active learning sampling strategy where like you're doing some counterfactual kind of search, but it sounded like that's not what you're actually doing. Do you have any thoughts there? So you can onqueue the data however you like in Prodigy. You know, it's just these Python scripts. Yeah, like yeah, and also you can update, you can decide when to update the model. So that's, it's, yeah, if you're writing your own logic, that's optional, but you can have a callback that's executed every time you get a new batch back. So you can then say, okay, I have these, this knowledge, now I can update the model, and then I can, for example, get the same data back or like other examples back with the adjusted predictions and see what I get out of there. So that's that could be one option. And sometimes you have this nice effect where you click through a few examples or maybe you reject some things that were almost correct. And then in the next batch, if it goes over the data again, you actually get the correct pass because you're like, yep, model tried again and got it right this time. But that's often kind of nice because it's also very motivating if you're, if you're doing the annotation to really see um, the impact. So if I'm understanding right, then what you have built into Prodigy already says, I'm going to sample based on the uncertainty of the model mm -hmm. and show those particular decisions to the user, mm -hmm. uh, the annotator. Uh, but you're not saying like, if I get this annotation and then train with it, how much will my model change? Or like, if I can condition on this how much does the re how much does uncertainty drop for my model for the rest of the sentence? You're right that we're not we're not doing it that way. You know, it, it might be easy to just describe in detail the the current like any teach recipe, but um, again, these are it's kind of subject to play testing, um, which is the way that I you know think of this. And uh, actually, I'd really like to uh, experiment with more dependency parsing annotation strategies, like things like starting from the root down is. You know, I, I think that that's yeah. a reasonable thing to try. With and we've, we've also like consciously designed Prodigy in a very modular way. So the idea is, for example, the, that uncertainty sampling, that's a function that you can import, which is called prefer uncertain. You wrap that around your stream that yields score example tuples, and then it sorts that. And then there's another one, prefer high score. So you can write your own and say, oh, let's try this kind of approach. So that's definitely, that's definitely something we've already built into the thing. Yep. Yeah, that, that's a great way to do it. And I, what you have is great. I was just thinking like, there are some really interesting, really cool stuff you could do 
with this like extensible framework that you that you have that's that seem really cool one of the things that i find interesting about this is there's lots of decisions about minimizing the cognitive load on the annotator you know if you're only thinking about the information theory um, stuff which i think is something that the active learning literature is a little bit weak on at the moment you know they think of it in terms of all right if i have this many samples like how few samples do I need to do something? But the annotation speed is really, and annotation accuracy rate is uh, really important, right? So you'll probably not maximize the usefulness of each data point if you have the annotator stream through all of the entities of the same, like, you know, phrase type. So, you know, you, anal- you annotate all the Elon Musks at once, right? Now, those are not so useful in per sample basis, but God, you can click, them, click through them fast, right? So um, they'll flash up on the screen and you'll click through them in like less than one second. So if you minimize diversity in the data, um, then the um, annotation speed goes up enormously. And similarly, if you uh, sort the things by very high scoring uh, ones are all together, so you're clicking yes a lot and you're basically spamming accept. And, you know, often you go so fast that you have to like, go back in your kind of mental audio playback loop six seconds because you realized, <laughs> ah, that one a few seconds ago was wrong. And this is the type of consideration that I think is, you know, you basically just have to play test and do usability testing. It's not something that's easy to study in these kind of experimental frameworks. Yeah, those are really good points. One thing, so we need to get back to, we didn't ever actually answer one of Waleed's questions, which is how do we how do we learn in the presence of these binary decisions, right? So you, you're taking, in some cases, like a, a structured output, like a dependency parse, or a part of part of speech tag sequence, and you're breaking it down into a bunch of binary decisions. But I might not have all of them annotated for any particular example. How do I learn? Right. So let's take uh, the model has suggested Amazon as a person, and you've clicked reject. Right. And maybe that's the only annotation you have about the whole sentence. So all you know about this sentence is Amazon is not a person. So how do we update on that? Well, so first we do we run Beam search uh, with a global um, model objective. So basically, we're you know running the entity recognizer, and we might be outputting say sixteen best analyses. Now, if the state of the model was such that in none of those sixteen best analyses, Amazon was even suggested as a person, then we're actually not really going to make an update here, right? There's no information that we can teach the model about its current state. But let's say instead that you know the top ranked uh, pars or the third ranked pars or something like that allocated some probability to uh, Amazon being a person. Well, clearly we want to uh, update the weights such that that doesn't happen. So you can see already that, okay, there's a path here. There's a thing, got a current state of the model and we know how to make it better. We've got a distribution out of the thing and we know what distribution we would prefer instead, or at least a feature of the distribution that we'd like instead. And so even without the details of this, you should be able to see that there's a way to calculate that gradient update. So the specifics of the algorithm that we're using at the moment is uh, we run the beam set twice, once with these constraints that the annotations impose, so that we say, all right, give me a beam that complies with these constraints. And then we basically do this sort of multi-label softmax procedure where we say, update the weights such that these parses get zero probability and then renormalize the scores on these other ones that they sum to one and then update the weights with that target distribution. So one risk that we're doing here is that uh, we might be shifting the probability distribution to something that's also wrong. So maybe the, maybe we have three types, uh, person, mm-hmm. organization, and location. The remaining hypotheses that are compatible with the annotation uh, were all that Amazon is a location. So we would be shifting the distribution mm-hmm. from person to location, which is also wrong. And then we would hope that the next the future uh, annotations will help us fix this. How often do you find this to be a problem? As I mean, there is like it seems like there is a trade-off between 
between giving more information in each data point as opposed to doing a lot of iterations to uh, with smaller information. Does this make sense? Yes, but note that we might be updating towards a distribution that's still unideal, but we can't be more wrong than we were because we still output something that, you know, the scores are still proportionally amongst the ones which we obey the constraints, right? So let's say, you know, we're still wrong and like it has Amazon as a location where we want it all and it has location of 0.5 or whatever. The ratio between those two uh, classes won't change. It's just that they'll both be more likely than they were because they've stolen the weight off the person. And so we're still moving in the right direction, um, which is, you know, all you ever hope to do off a grading that. That makes a lot of sense. I think the question more of is about, like, practically, at what point does this fall apart? If we have 100 different categories, for example, if you have a classification, text classification problem, this asking about each class doesn't seem like a very efficient way to do it, but maybe it is, or is there a cutoff where uh, if your number of classes go beyond a certain limit, this doesn't become a very good way to do it anymore? In practice, if you're starting from a model that's pretty bad, then it's hard. If the model's already like pretty decent, then it works really well. Um, yeah, and also if you look at it from more of an application context, okay, your company, you have a model that works, you're analyzing large volumes of text and you just want to have the best possible you know, output. You want your model to be more right. So every tiny bit that shifted towards better predictions already makes a big difference, especially because you can average over those predictions and that's what you care about. So that, and that's also a big use case we're trying to um, solve here. And it's, okay, how, you want it to be better. Mm -hmm. And even 1% um, increase overall can already um, mean a lot to you financially, for example, to your company. Another thing that I'm curious about is what kind of limitations do we have when we use Prodigy in terms of defining the model itself? Are we allowed to design our own models or do we are we restricted to a certain class of, of uh, models? No, I mean, you can design any anything you want to label. If you can get that on the screen somehow, you can label it. Like, mm -hmm. of course, there's some restrictions. If you actually want to have your own model in the loop, there are obviously some modeling decisions you need to make in order to make this work well, which is something we've optimized for our own models. But if you want to plug something else in, you, for example, you have to make sure that it actually um, is more sensitive to updates because it will get, for example, one batch of annotations every time the user annotates a batch. So even if you set the batch size higher, you still need to be able to actually make meaningful updates from those batches. Those are all considerations, of course, you have to make. But in general, you can define... You have data that's coming in raw. You have some idea of a labeling scheme, however you want to label that data. So for most cases, all you have to do is think about, okay, do I want to highlight spans? Do I want to assign labels to the whole text? How do I, maybe do I want to have a multiple choice thing? How do I make this more efficient? How can I really reduce it to the core of what I'm trying to find out? And at the end of it, you get the data out. Like it's also, of course, we say for some things, it makes sense to annotate more statically, take mm. your corpus at the end, have a gold standard corpus that you've produced and then train from that. So that's all possible. Yeah. So, you know, it's just this Python script and you just need to write generated outputs. If you want to use our sources, then you would you know, output a tuple of like score example where the example is just this JSON record and, you know, it has span offsets and that sort of thing. Or if you're using a different type of view, like an image or something, you can use that instead. It's really pretty simple. Like, you know, one of our, like, you know, little mottos is let them write code. Um, so, you know, we think that it's a lot easier if you can just write this in Python and, you know, use that as the a big chunk of the API for that sort of customization. Right, so this will allow Matt, for example, to try a different way of deciding which data points to annotate and maybe compare to what you're doing and, and see what works better. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So I think the last question that I had was along this line of we're trying to fine tune a model, right? You've said a few times in this conversation that 
there is a cold start problem. You really don't want to do this binary annotation mm -hmm. kind of thing if, if, if you don't have something that's already at least close. And for business uses, it's a lot more take an existing model and apply it to some new domain where like maybe I want to have a biomedical NER tagger or something that's geared towards fashion or whatever, right? So this is less about defining new tasks and more about like domain adaptation kinds of stuff. And we've seen a lot of work recently in natural language processing research along the lines of pre-trained language models like Elmo and BERT and other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. How do you see this changing what you do going forward? So we've been looking forward to being able to pre-train what we call the encode step or like the LSTM step or, you know, whatever mod, uh, type of widget you're using to make the, the vectors context sensitive. We've been looking forward to being able to pre-train that for a long time. I think actually we have like, you know, slides going back like a couple of years where we say, oh, I'm, I'm sure that we can pre-train this bit, but the output bit is where you actually get to sort of write your program and where you get to define the output. Uh, you know, so that's the bit that you'll always want to annotate. Very excited to see these uh, things coming together and to see that this really starting to work because the results that are coming out where, you know, you only need like 1,000 labels to get pretty plausible accuracy of some text cat task. Great. That means it takes you 15 minutes to define a text cat model. That's really good. Um, and that fits exactly with what we're intending with, you know, rapid prototyping and having just, you know, you have an idea and try it out. Make sure I understand. You're basically saying these things just make our lives way easier because the Prodigy tool is designed exactly for the use case that these large pre-trained models enable, right? Yeah. It's been really nice talking to you. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you wanted to talk about that we missed? Well, actually, one thing that hasn't come up that I think is a bit different from the way a lot of people are designing annotation tools, uh, especially commercially, uh, is that, you know, we really think that people should want to hold on to their data and that they shouldn't want to upload, you know, sensitive text to you know, some company. Another aspect of this as well is the text that people are trying to sort of combine together from all these different sources to sort of make one master model that will keep getting better or whatever is actually much less useful than people think. Prodigy really works entirely offline. The data never has to leave your service, which we think makes the tool much more useful. Yeah, and this is also how we, we, did, we want to design other um, tools that we're working on in the future. So for example, at the moment, we're working on a more servicey extension that actually that lets users scale up the annotation project, makes it easier to like manage multiple annotators, multiple data sources, create larger corpora and bigger projects. And even there, we've come up with um, what we think is a pretty good, pretty innovative solution to make this work in more of a cloud setting while still giving users full control of their data. So basically, their data stays on a cluster that they run, that they control. We never see any of that. And they can still have the full experience of a service without mm -hmm. having to compromise on their data privacy. Yeah. Great. Thanks for coming on. It was nice talking with you. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Cool.